Oregon Behavior Consultation is a state-approved behavior consultation company in Oregon. Nate Sheets is not a therapist, and you should always check with your child's therapist or team before implementing any suggestions or ideas that you get from this podcast. Everyone is different, and so not all suggestions will work or be appropriate for everyone. Hello and welcome to It's a Brain Thing, a podcast where we explore the various aspects of life for people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders and the people who support them. Today I'm joined by my co-host, Jill Snell. Hi, Jill. Hi. Hi, guys. Um, and So this is our second episode with Jill. You guys might remember her from last week. And I did not mention in that episode how we have changed the name of our podcast. So we, of course, used to be called the Cognitive Support Podcast, and now we've changed that to It's a Brain Thing Podcast, just to try to, you know, make things a little bit more understandable. Yeah. Yeah. Warm us up a bit. Warm eh? us up. I pers- personally, I mean, if you've watched my videos, you know I love cognitive skills and technical stuff. But again, another reason why it's helpful to have Jill yeah. at the table. I like warmness and coziness <laughs> yeah. and love and emotions. Yeah. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about IEPs or individual education programs or plans. So, you know, maybe you don't live in the U.S. and this doesn't 100% apply to you. But I think if you have a child with FASD who's going to school, a lot of what we talk about will be relevant. So, Jill, you have kids in the public school system. Is it difficult? Is it easy? What's your, what's your experience been like? Um, great question, Nate Sheets. Um, <laughs> so we came from a really rural, uh, that's a super hard word to say. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say it again for fun. Rural. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, district where they had very little funding for special ed and they put all kids with any type of brain boo-boos or brain barriers or body barriers in one little portable. Yeah. And they had really well-intended teachers and aides, but they were understaffed and uh, undervalued. And that was a really hard scenario. And I think a lot of Americans are in that type of scenarios with their public education. We moved our family. My husband found a job in a district that... Uh, had more resources and yeah. supports for kiddos like our oldest um, so that we could have more help and supports. Yeah. And ever since then, it's it's taken the burden off of me of being mom and special ed uh, contractor. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the baseline for both is um, just being present and being positive and being grateful for whatever effort is being put there right yeah and so that's a a good point to make like we're going to be talking about some strategies today that you might be able to use but we're not you know trying to be negative about the people who work in schools so i hope it doesn't come off that way sometimes it does and you know i've gotten feedback on that but i mean the reality is it is it is a struggle for the vast majority of my families to engage with the public school system even in districts where there are the resources because we're trying to get the people working with our kids to understand that there's a brain thing happening here and not intentional misbehavior that can be really difficult so today we're going to give you some ideas for writing the IEPs or just following up with the school and the staff, and hopefully you'll find some of them helpful. I also want to mention that a lot of what we're going to be talking about today, I actually asked a bunch of parents in the shifting the paradigm towards a neurobehavioral approach 
uh, Facebook group, which we're going to link into the, uh, it's a well mouthful. Done, well yeah, done. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're going to link that into our show notes, but I asked them, so they, um, you know, give me a bunch of great answers. So these are not all from me. They're from various different, uh, parents who've been through it. So, uh, a lot of great resources there. So, um, just a couple of things I want to note. Firstly, children who have been through trauma, like early childhood trauma, the first couple of years of their life after birth. So um, even after, you know, being exposed to alcohol, they can really struggle in these school settings because they often engage in fight or flight behaviors. And then it's, you know, interpreted potentially depending on the school, you know, as intentional misbehavior. And when it comes to trauma and fight or flight in younger kids, it can be very challenging to handle. So if your child has been through that, you definitely want to mention that in the IEP as well as any behavior support plans that, you know, your child qualifies for. Even with the knowledge, even if it's written in the plans, getting the adults working with your child who has that past of responding in the appropriate ways or trying to be proactive can be difficult. So we're going to talk about strategies today um, and how you can do that. So that's one thing to mention. Um, and it can be difficult. Again, I'm not trying to be combative. Um, you know, our our kids are just one of many kids in a lot of classrooms. So, um, but getting the school staff, maybe teachers, maybe administrators or support staff to understand the neurobehavioral model, which we discussed last week, it can be very difficult. Um, for And a, ongoing. A, and ongoing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So a lot of what we're going to talk about today will hopefully help you listening as parents to be able to communicate a lot of these ideas, understanding that a lot of the behaviors are not what they appear to be on the surface. They're not intentional. Um, they're not thought out. They're not even planned. A lot of it is impulsive and just the result of what's going on in the brain. So let's talk about some specific suggestions. One person who gave me some feedback said, when you are going to go into an IEP meeting, so that will be different for everybody because it tends to happen once a year um, and it can happen at any point of the year. So it just is kind of the luck of the draw there. But when you go into the meeting, um, you might remember that there is a place in the IEP for parent input and parent concerns. And she suggested doing that ahead of time. She said, uh, write your parent input ahead of time and hand it out at the meeting. The team should address all of your concerns and requests for accommodations. And if they say no to an accommodation, they will need to justify it. So that can be helpful because we might have, you know, in our world, in the FASD world, we have very specific interventions, right? And sometimes that can be difficult to translate. This is literally exactly what my child needs. They need this object to prompt them for this support or this coping skill in this moment. So if, you know, the district and the school say this is not going to happen, they will then need to justify that. And that can be helpful later. Um, she said, if they say no to an accommodation, the very first time they call you to say your child is acting out, you can say, well, you know, this is why I wrote this in the input. And so we should call an IEP meeting and calling an IEP meeting, you know, is oftentimes a negative thing in those terms. Like, so we don't want to be having all of these meetings. So maybe we should then just try these interventions that we initially said no for. So that's kind of a little bit of hacking of the system. Um, and it will just depend on your situation. Another parent I talked to, Linda, who's one of the moderators on the neurobehavioral um, 
group that I mentioned before, here's what she had to say. Um, and this is regarding behavior goals. So there's different goals in the IEP, mostly for academics, but depending on if you have kids who display behaviors at school, you might have some behavior goals. So she said that I do not allow behavior goals in our IEPs. Kids do well when they can. Instead, I have supports and accommodations put in, such as sensory room will be utilized when this kiddo feels dysregulated. Um, and then she says, my child gets to decide when he's dysreg or when they're dysregulated, not some teacher who might think he's slacking. And so I think that's really important is giving, um, having a plan in place with the school and your kid to where they can express, I need to step away right now. And um, that's kind of half of what we're going to be talking about because a lot of our kids, they don't have the ability to even process that in the moment. But if they can, like the school needs to be listening to them. They need to be listening to, I need a moment here. And really, the more we do that, the better, because then they're learning the skill that I can advocate for myself. There's nothing wrong with needing a break. Absolutely. And I that, that happened true with our child as well. On her IEP, it wasn't a formal accommodation, but it was uh, written in her remarks that she was allowed, a, a lot of the time they dissuade you from allowing your kids to have input on their IEP or have input on their supports. And one thing with our daughter is that she, there on some hard days when she's really struggling, especially on the playground, she just wants a hug and she just wants to be cuddled and it makes everything feel better for her. And we live really close by. And so I told them if there's just a day that she needs it, I would love to be able to come. And they were they did not want that to happen. They didn't want her. They thought she was going to abuse that privilege. They thought she was going to overuse mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And I was like, no, she she wants to be independent. She wants to be like a typical kid. So she's not going to have her mommy come and give her a hug unless she really needs it. Mm -hmm. So they agreed to put it in. And there was only five times where she asked for me to come and give her a hug. And it was right before she had a massive meltdown. And I told them if next year we have four times she calls, it's a success. And the next year, if we have three times she calls, it's a success. So yeah. I uh, really advocating that the ki these kids want to be as their peers are. And so if they can start learning how to advocate for what they need, it's an incredible resource for them yeah. to tap into. And, and and so the name of the game with FASD is we need to do a lot less talking and yeah. give a lot more time to process. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, having that in the IEP in some practical way that's absolutely clear is really helpful. So Linda says, the funny thing is, once I insisted on you know, the school letting my child decide when they are dysregulated, my kids began to love going to school. Yay. And <laughs> the child who flat out wouldn't go now waits for the bus already in the morning. I love it. Seriously, they aren't behaviors. They're symptoms of a disability and they can be accommodated. Yes, Linda. Thank you, Linda. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, and that is exactly what we talked about last week it's this neurobehavioral model and it can be hard to get teachers even who've been trained in special education to like think in this way to understand like you know to not try to react how do we prevent you know how do we respond to this but how do rather how do we prevent it in the future that's the important question so that's something to keep in mind now you know, insisting that there are no behavior goals. I'm not necessarily against any behavioral goals, but that goal must be accompanied by several 
you know, interventions. So if we want to see a measurable change, that's great, but it has to be more than just the kiddos going to try really harder to make rage be less of an issue or to not hit peers as much or to not just leave the room. How do we provide the support? And then of course, you know, the schools should be providing the resources to come up with the answers to those questions. Like, you know, you as a parent might have some answers and some ideas, but that should be an ongoing conversation. That's what the neurobehavioral model is all about. Um, and it's also, I mean, most schools in the United States use positive behavior support, which is a discipline within psychology. And so they should also be emphasizing the proactive. So one thing you can ask yourself is if this school is using positive behavior support in their plans um, and their approaches to my kids, supposedly, you know, are there enough proactive things in place? Because a lot of times, you know, schools that I've worked with, you know, they're supposedly using this positive behavior support discipline, but everything is how do we respond, you know, or any of the proactive stuff is just really basic, you know, change the environment or whatever a little. And that's great. Like we should do that, but that's not necessarily going to be enough. People with FASD are going to need more specific practical supports. So let's also talk about, you know, just kind of our relationship with the various members of an IEP team. And that can be difficult because it really depends on the parent. But some parents, you know, they might struggle when the opinions kind of differ, especially when it comes to what kind of supports do my kids need? If you think your kid needs a one-on-one and you have a school district recommending let's mainstream them, that's several degrees separate. And that means that you guys both have completely different views of the supports that your child needs. And so, you know, clarifying that and then working with your team. So what are some things that you've done, Jill, to kind of, you mentioned this in the beginning, but how do you, you know, help that relationship with the various members? I genuinely believe that this is the most important aspect of an IEP plan is fostering a relationship, a, a grateful relationship with the supports, because not only Will people go to bat for you and will give your child the best of themselves when they believe in your family? But on top of that, they uh, will have a greater understanding of your child's needs when you can play into their empathy. I genuinely believe that no one gets into education unless they have a heart to help. And I think sometimes uh, teachers can get calloused by the boxes which um, the school districts put them in and and they can get lost at but if you can tap into that empathy and that compassion that will drive the teacher's behaviors and choices when they interact daily with your kids and when you have have to trust another adult for eight hours a day to help mold and guide your child you better be darn sure that they have the best intentions Um, and they I have always found that if you tap into that empathy and compassion that's how you how you get the teacher to 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 do their best for your child Mm -hmm. but one of the best ways that I do it I think we always talk about visual supports for our kids but I know for me as a tired anxious mom visual supports are critical for me on a daily basis to remember um, and to keep me focused Mm -hmm. on what my goals are and I feel the same thing with teachers when they have 30 kids in the room and half of them are falling to pieces What's going to help them keep focused on your uh, particular goals? And so I make I make a book individualized for my daughter, and it has a picture on her on the cover, and it has about me with just some little pictures um, on it in the first. And then the best – and I also have a little snippet of what FASD is just to remind the teachers what she has to go through on a daily yeah. basis just to be okay. Yeah. Because, again, that taps into the empathy – 
And then on the third page, I have a what works, what doesn't work. And I think this is one of the most critical pieces because it's a quick sheet, a quick cheat sheet for anyone that's working with. If it's substitutes, they can look at it. If it's music teachers that forget. If it's volunteers, parents and volunteers, I absolutely ask all volunteers working with my daughter in the school to read this book because it makes the world of a difference. And what works, what doesn't work is just a really nice visual, clean model of things that work for her and ways to interact with her, speech patterns, processing time versus what doesn't work, rushing her, aggressive tone, any type of any type of negative feedback whatsoever, erasing her work, all of those things. And it's just really beautifully, calmly formatted so that teachers can look at it and be reminded on a daily basis or a weekly basis or a monthly basis whenever they start to lose focus. And it's not my words shouting at them, I need you to step it up. It's this nice little cozy book Yeah, that's, <laughs> saying, hey-oh. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. And, and it'll, it will also allow you if situations do occur, yeah. you know, if – there was a response because I mean, honestly, let's just be really honest. We often don't respond well to challenging behaviors as adults. Yeah. So, you know, n- not that we're blaming the situations on the school, but we can clearly show with this, you know, visual or this book, you know, well, this, we specifically said you should not do this and this seemed to have happened. So yeah. next time let's try this. So it can give you kind of this direction to move forward. For sure. Um, and I think even like on that same note, Nate, I think I've never had to go through it and be like, you were doing this on the naughty list or on the what doesn't work. I've always just focused on the what works. So I'm saying clearly we're still having this behavior. Let's go back to the what works. And they are able to pick up the pieces because they they're like, oh, yeah, I didn't do that. And then it doesn't put me in a place where I'm blaming. They come up with it themselves because, again, they want to do well at their job and they want to reach our children. So this visual support takes any pressure off of me being the bad guy and puts it directly onto their own self-realization. Yeah, I mean, you're essentially applying the neurobehavioral model to everybody. <laughs> yeah. typical humans. And yeah. um, just another thought that I had is that if you, as a parent, are you, maybe you're starting a new school, so you're going to have kind of a new team. But even if it's the same team, you know, if you're having a meeting at the beginning of the year or at any point, you know, at that meeting, have a discussion and say, here's what didn't work for me last year. So if there were any issues, because sometimes there's issues of communication. Sometimes you're not given incident reports and really a reasonable amount of time. It takes a while, but you should be getting incident reports 48 hours, you know, after the event mm-hmm. um, or just d- difficulties, you know, express that in the meeting and say, how can we this next year you know, improve in these areas so you can really pinpoint what you need. And then maybe even in expressing that you're going to hear feedback that will inform you of why maybe that's an issue and so you guys can again of course be collaborative together for sure and I think that's why that book also works wonders too is because I always find out the first day that teachers are back and they it's normally like a week or two before school starts but if you find out that day and you go in the first day or two you're not overwhelming them with all of these like hey this is my kid and my kid's fabulous and Mm -hmm. unique and special and this is why you just hand them the book you give them a hug and you're like I cannot wait to work with you I'm so stoked I've heard amazing things about you just let me know what your thoughts and feelings are about after you have time to read this book and that allows them on their own time when they're stoked to start the school and their energy's up and their Mm -hmm. excitement for the years up to read the book and get on the same page with you without you being the annoying parent without you being the overly aggressive parent again it takes that pressure off of you and yeah. gives them a visual support yeah totally yeah. Um, another common thing which I would highly recommend I mean at least for the vast majority of my clients is you know homework should not be a thing 
Um, and oftentimes the reason for this is we are dealing with behaviors. If you guys have watched our videos or if you know, you've worked with me, we, we talk about this idea of executive functioning fuel. So when it comes, and this is true for everybody, but when it comes to your executive functioning skills, um, attention, transitioning, planning, abstract thinking, working memory, emotional regulation, all these things, um, you have a finite, literal finite amount of energy to do it. And so we have these kids who might be able to hold it together at school by just kind of willpower in a sense, but then they get home and there is nothing left. And so to have the expectation of homework, I mean, that's just usually too much. And so that's just something you should discuss with the team. If you find that getting your kid to do homework is creating behaviors, maybe the solution is we need to be supporting them more during the school day to get that work done. And then that will allow us to work on what we need to work on at home. And I also think on that note of uh, homework at home, my main reason for not having it is because I want my daughter to have a certain amount of hours a day where she gets to excel at something she's passionate about and something that fills her soul. School's always going to be hard for her. The peer interaction is a forced upon peer interaction. The curriculum is a forced upon interaction. I want to fill her afternoons and evening that something that will fill her and that will excite her and that will build her self-confidence. And when, and for typical kids, that's hard to do when you have homework, but for our FASD kids, it's impossible. So ignore the homework. Even if they don't put it on your IEP, just stop doing it. Just stop doing it. Your kids will be fine and plug them into something that they're passionate and fabulous at and they will shine. Cool. 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 And then um, this was mentioned by parents that I asked, as well as just in my experience, I see, you know, after there are incidents, there needs to be a discussion of what the staff or adults, you know, supporting could have done differently to prevent the behaviors or what can we do differently if we're thinking more in that forward way. One parent that responded to my question said that, you know, view it as being curious. Okay, we just had an incident. Let's be curious about what led to it, which really is the neurobehavioral model. What are the brain things and how can we prevent it next time? And that can be difficult for teachers who have 35 other kids to deal with, um, but it's really important. And this whole idea, just to reiterate, the neurobehavior, there's brain reasons for all of these things happening. It's foreign to many teachers, including special education teachers. And so you know, you can't just say, you know, to a teacher, you need to think about this differently, like help them think about it differently. Give them those actual, here's what might've happened. Cause you're going to know as a parent, you know, probably more than anybody else, when there's a situation, you're going to know exactly what the issues were. So you can let them know that in a way. So, and how can we prevent it um, a little bit later on? The other thing too, is that a lot of schools, it, usually when we get to like middle school or high school, is, you know, there's an incident and before you're even, you know, alerted of the incident, that student has already met with an administrator. There's already been a punishment. So that phone call you're getting is here's what happened and they're suspended. So trying to get the IEP team and the administration who's going to be a part of that meeting to say, you know what, let's not come up with any punitive measures right away. Not until the parents and the team has been notified. Because just slowing that process down, that can help everybody to calm down and think about what happened. And I like that. Yeah. And so, you know, just having kind of this practice of, okay, there's going to be an incident. Please don't decide the response until 24 hours afterwards or until after we've talked about it. And 
that will unfortunately just be kind of dependent on the team and what they're willing to do. Um, but that can be helpful. Just something I've come across. I like that. Um, also, I think that the IEPs and especially the behavior support plans should both mention how beneficial silent processing time is. Um, and I've mentioned this in videos before. I mention it to all the families that I work with, but we are all terrible at giving enough time to process. It does not come naturally. And so we think we're doing it, but then we actually end up talking to somebody else or, you know, saying something else to try. We think that we're helping the kiddo think, but really we literally need to not be talking and it's really so difficult. Hard. It is very yeah. difficult. And so mentioning that, mentioning that specifically in the IEP, you know, at least at the very least it provides a framework. So if it's not happening enough, you can say, Hey guys, you know, the, the IEP says this, so let's, let's, you know, give it another try. And, and this kind of leads us into the next point, which is with children who have some challenging behaviors, especially the oppositional kind. So, and this is not necessarily every kid with FASD, but when it's really challenging, just like we at home have to practice a lot of plans, so does the school staff. If they think that they can handle an oppositional kid just fine, they're, unfortunately, they're probably fooling themselves. So, you know, if we need to not be responding and just being quiet, that is something that they should be role playing within, you know, themselves as a staff and, you know, as a support team. And so just really trying to encourage them to practice the plans to role play. People don't like to role play. They think it's pointless, but it really isn't. Um, we've talked about that before. Role playing is probably frankly one of the most helpful things you can do when we're talking about what do we need to say or how do we need to respond so making sure that they're willing to do that and that they are doing that can be really helpful well and on that same note i think us as parents role playing there was a situation that nate helped us helped us with our oldest what she was she was getting really anxious on the playground and for a thousand and a half reasons the recess is challenging for her but in this particular instance she didn't know how to play one of the games on the playground. So she was really perseverating on uh, how you do this and what the rules are, but it was coming out in this really obsessive behavior that her peers right. were basically telling her, just don't play, just go away. And she was getting uh, more and more hurt. And the more hurt and embarrassed she was getting, the more she was obsessing over it and the more challenging behaviors that were coming up. So Nate had the idea that we go to the playground after school when no other kids were around and we would practice this game on the playground. And we did that and she learned that game and it was no longer this anxiety ridden interaction with her peer. Mm -hmm. I used to also go and I would play with all of the peers with her on the playground when she was younger and to teach her how to swing or to, to do more gross motor skills because she was delayed or the fine motor skills on the playground because she was delayed or learning how to play wall ball or four square because there's so many rules we don't even think about that other kids are picking up. But it's too much for our kids and learning those basic playground games was a really positive person or, or for my case they didn't have support on the playground so I had to go in myself and being really playful and fun and keeping her engaged and, and, a, and, and excited about learning these games and now she can play these games and it's no longer a deal for her and she has something that's structured that's expected that she can go to on the playground right. when she's having a hard time yeah so the role playing for us as parents um, and with our kids, I think is really important for to to help support the IEP because I, Nate, I absolutely believe this that it's not just the school's responsibility for our children. And I know we're all working, and I know we're yeah. all exhausted, but we too have to have a part in making it successful because they 
are doing their best. They're absolutely doing their best. And we have to be mindful of that, that we can contribute to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, another area that you might want to address in the IEP is using visuals. So visuals provide supports for various cognitive skills. And I talk about this in my trainings um, and with my clients, but you know, again, kind of like role playing, people tend to not want to use visuals when they're working with somebody because it might seem like it doesn't work or it might just seem like a pain in the butt. But really, they are so helpful. So when it comes to coping strategies, so when you have a kid who's in a classroom, maybe getting overstimulated or getting frustrated or getting escalated, you know, having a visual ready to go to remind them, here's what my options are. And because I've practiced this plan, you know, with my um, teacher or the people that I'm working with, you know, I know how to use this. That's going to be really important. And that was mentioned by a lot of the parents that I talked about one parent talked about how they had a visual for sensory issues ready to go. And she said at 33 years old, we still hear hear comments about how self-aware he is in this area. Mm -hmm. So by using it in school as a support, it helped him to practice the skill. And that's exactly what all of the stuff we're talking about is we just need to practice these skills and we're going to start to see some improvements. And that's awesome. I mean, when you think of all of the challenges that a person with FASD has, if even only one of their few skills is to identify, here's the sensory thing that I need right now. That's going to help them a lot, you know, and independence and maintaining relationships in a lot of different areas. So whatever we can do, we definitely want to do. Nate, that was my first struggle with any teacher on an IEP. It was first grade. And she, I was asking for supports for emotional regulation in the classroom. And the autism specialist said, we don't like to do visual supports because we think that they just get stuck up on only needing Ugh. supports. And I said, when I would take her to the grocery store when she was little, uh, she would have a meltdown every single time. When I started giving her a visual of what our list was and she was able to click on what we got in the cart, what we didn't have in the cart, she was productive, she was focused. Now she can go to the grocery store and she doesn't need those things. So you cannot tell me. So I think using those examples, when you use them in your real life and you can say in the IEP meeting, but here's an example of why I know a specific example. of Yeah. So really that's what it talks about. Like when we talk about that, we are also responsible for upholding that IEP. Use those supports in your own life so that you can come back with ammunition if they challenge you and say, I can give you an exact reason why I have seen that in her real life and why I know that's a powerful, a powerful support. I think that's important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then just kind of the last thing that was mentioned is, you know, as you as a parent are encountering, you know, certain trainings, certain blog posts, certain videos, maybe created by Oregon Behavior Consultation, (laughs) you know, you forward that to the teachers because you're, you know, a lot of teachers to hear those practical ideas or what applies to your kid. Maybe it's about trauma. Maybe it's about FASD, whatever it's about, you know, hopefully they'll watch it and learn and continue to work well with your kids. That's just another idea um, to make sure. So, And it also gives emphasis on importance. I think sometimes teachers think we're all just like angry, crazy parents that are just out to try to get the best for our kids. And I think a lot of us sometimes feel like we can play that role. But if we have professionals in the community that have been guiding us, it kind of takes away that, Mm -hmm. that shield and it allows the teachers to really hear us and really listen. So it just gives more ammunition for us. For us. Yeah. yeah, totally. 
Cool. Well, so we hope that this episode has been helpful to you to give you some ideas as you're going into the next school year of, you know, things to maybe discuss with your IEP team or put in the IEP itself. Um, If you have any other ideas, feel free to send us a message on Facebook. Um, Thank you very much to everyone for listening. And you guys, you got this. It's going to be an awesome epic year. It'll be so good. Yeah. Have a great week. 